This is a story about two sisters who asked Jesus to come heal their brother. Familiar, but it's interesting because of how Jesus heals their brother. (laughs) Particularly in the fact that he waits for Lazarus to die before he even attempts to come to heal him. That's interesting. So, Lazarus is sick. The kind of sickness that he's not going to recover from. And the long bony fingers of death, that shadow has reached up across his bed. And Mary and Martha, his sisters, look at him and know that there is not much time left. So they send for Jesus. Jesus, help! Come, help us. We need you. Have you ever prayed that prayer before? Comfortingly, we see two things in which Jesus in verse 4 says, this illness is not fatal. It's not going to end in death. And then in verse 5, says that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now, we miss this in the Greek. It actually reads, and we don't translate this because it's awkward, but we need to see this because of its emphasis. The Greek literally reads, and Jesus loved this Martha, this Mary, and this Lazarus. And there are times when we need to hear that, not Jesus loves you. And we're like, yeah, you is plural. We know that. And we've all heard that. But there are times when we need to hear Jesus loves this Brandon. It personalizes the message of his love, especially in a context where you need to know that the love of God is unfailing and it is there Good news. Enter verse 6 to spoil the party. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, I love the logic of this. Jesus loved him, so, because he loved him, when he heard that he was ill, he delayed two days. Have you ever felt like The promises of God are like, they're the universal truths, but you're the exception that the radio announcer says really fast at the end of a promotional event. (laughs) And like, that's, I'm, the promise is there, it's the banner, but I'm the excluded one at the end of the commercial. Or like, you're the footnote, the fine print that says, you know, this is great, too good to be true, we know. Therefore, read the fine print and find out you're disqualified. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like the prayers are there and you're like, Jesus, help us. And then there is no answer. There's no return. There's no coming. There's nothing but delay. And even delay is an interesting word because you don't know it's delay. Delay implies he's coming later, but you think he's never coming. He hasn't heard me. The heavens are brass. Well, Mary and Martha felt that way too. For when Jesus does finally show up, not only does Martha subtly remind Jesus, he's been dead for four days, you know, he stinks, but they also directly let him know their disappointment by saying, both sisters, same wording, 
if you would have been here, Lazarus would not have died. When Jesus got off the boat, he was greeted instantly by a man on his knees, imploring Jesus in very rushed tones, please, Jesus, come now. She's only 12. She's about to die. Take me with you. And so the minute Jesus is on the shore, he's following Jairus, the synagogue ruler. His 12-year-old girl is on the threshold of death. And Jesus comes with him. And can you imagine being Jairus? You've made the walk across town to get to Jesus. Jesus, we got to get back across town to get to my house. We got to save my little girl. She is moments away from passing. And so he's walking briskly. And Jesus would have perhaps been walking just as briskly, except for the fact that the street narrows and the masses are now crowding in left and right, forward and backward, and it becomes the 91 freeway on a Friday night. <laughs> and Jairus is up ahead leading the way. Come on, army, let's go heal her. And he cannot pull Jesus fast enough. There's nothing he can do. The crowds have slowed Jesus down and the angst, the anxiety, the hurry, hurry, hurry going on in Jairus is wanting everything he can possibly do to just crowds, people, let him through, please, my daughter. And perhaps he would have cried out and pleaded with the crowd, except he noticed that Jesus was no longer even trying to walk. He was looking around, stopped, and was looking around asking, who touched me? How angering is that? As the disciples so poetically pointed out, what do you mean who touched you? I've been elbowed 15 times. (laughs) Not to mention by you, Jesus. They're so pressed in. You really care about who touched you right now, Jesus? Like, let's talk about this on the way. Come on, come on. As you walk, who, by the way, who did touch me? As you walk, you do I have to stop? And then to make matters worse, Jesus stoops down and is found talking to a woman. Okay, she can wait. I'm sure she'll be there when we come back. He's talking to a woman. And while Jairus is struggling with this loving Jesus, who does not even care enough to get to his house on time, his servants come and whisper in his ear, it's too late. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. And so Jairus' world now implodes. It collapses in on him. And all he can do is lower his head and return to his house when just then Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, great things will happen? And Jairus looks around hopeful and there's Jesus, this time walking very slowly to his house. There's no hurry. There's no longer a need to beat the clock, to beat death. Jairus has given up. It's over. If Jesus can do anything great, And so the pace is leisurely. They get to the house. It's already filled with mourners, crying and weeping over the death. The table in the kitchen is already overflowing with care cards and casserole dishes. And Jesus looks around and says, 
Funeral's over. We have not had proper time to mourn. What do you mean? Get, just get them out right now. There's no need to mourn. She's sleeping. To get him out of the house, Jesus takes the little girl by the hand. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And she gets up. And she walks. And she eats. And Jairus can't believe it. You can't believe it. I can't believe it. And yet I find myself not as impressed with the miracle. Jesus has done that before. As I am impressed with Jesus's presence to need when seemingly greater needs are pressing on him and urging him here now. Jairus needs you now. And I'm impressed that Jesus can stop in the midst of that and think about a woman whom he could have talked to on the way back. Who is this Jesus who doesn't care about our pain enough to come deliver us from our pain. Who is this Jesus? C.S. Lewis has said this in the Screw Tape Letters. God relies on the troughs, his imagery for your low points. So God relies on your pain your bad times, even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. You must have often wondered why God does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. I mean, why isn't God just more miraculous in our lives all the time? He leaves the creature to stand, that's you and I, the creature, to stand up on its own two legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. So when you don't feel like God is there anymore, and you don't feel like worship matters, and you don't feel like obedience is going to count for anything because God hasn't really listened to me, when all relish, joy, and pleasure in following him has left, and the human creature stands on his two feet and says, yet I still will obey, that, Lewis is saying, is what he's trying to get us to. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that the human is growing into the sort of creature God wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants us to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. If only the will to walk is really there, he's pleased with even our stumbles. He wants us to learn to walk, to grow up, And so sometimes he will stop literally carrying us over every rock and say, let's practice walking over this one now. Oh, it hurts. And you stumble and you get angry. Why did you do this to me? But Lewis is pointing out that as long as the will to try is there, God is pleased. Which is good news for Mary and Martha who have much choice words and opinions for Jesus at this time of their trough, their pain. Now, C.S. Lewis said that 
I then started to think about prayer as they had prayed. And I did a word search on the word wait. I know it sounds really scholarly. I took a lot of time, but all I did was enter wait in a search bar and got instant results. So here you have it. I want you to get the sense. The Psalms, this is in the ESV translation. Uh, it, it comes up with wait this many times. I want you just to listen to these psalms. By the way, our reading, if you've been doing the readings with the week, Psalm 130 is one of these psalms that talk a lot about waiting. You see how it fits very nicely with the Lazarus passage. So the psalms, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. For you I wait all the day long. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. But for you, Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. My soul waits for God alone. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. For God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence, for my hope is in him. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. But they, evildoers, soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. My soul waits for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen for the morning. That was from Psalm 130 and the last in the Psalms. Lewis tells us that God will intentionally make us be in these places where we have to wait for him because it grows us. The Psalms over and over learn that prayer is not always about God, get here now. God, save me from this problem. But the Psalms teach us that prayer is also about God. God. The love of God does not guarantee us protection from pain. It never promises that. As the psalm say, sometimes you just have to wait. Sometimes there's pain. Sometimes there's agony. Sometimes there's angst. Mary and Martha, Lazarus, Jairus, sometimes things are not going on your time. 
The love of God does not promise protection from pain. The love of God does promise, though, his presence in pain. And Mary and Martha hurt very much, yet Jesus is there. Maybe not when they wanted, but there's reasons for that. And we're getting to this. But he was there, and he even wept with them. That is what the love of God promises. That we will not be alone in our pain. And that he does understand us, even though we don't always understand him. So this waiting. So Mary and Martha, let's look at them. Both of them blame. It's your fault, you know, if you would have been here. So in verse 21, we see this. Both of them have slightly different angles on this. So Martha, in verse 21, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But look what she says next. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says things that she may regret later. I have said things I may regret later. I know you have. This is what happens when we're in pain, when things don't make sense. Our words don't always make sense. You know, Job went through a lot in the book of Job. And he said some things that were not theologically correct. And then his friends think that the best counseling advice they can give Job is to correct his theology, correct his beliefs in God. And Job says this to them. It's Job 6, 26. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? In other words, pain is a poor theologian. The only theology pain understands, the only beliefs about God pain understands is confusion, is condemnation. It's criticism. Like Mary and Martha, Jesus, you should have been here. It's your fault. He's dead because you, we sent for you. And I don't know why you stopped at Starbucks in that line on your way, but that's why this happened. Pain is a very, very poor spokesman about who God is. And we have to understand that, that when I'm in pain, I can't always hear the things that come out of my mouth and say, oh, that's my true beliefs. Mm-mm. And we can't always correct each other when we're in pain. We just have to silently bear and listen and understand that this is just wind coming out of them. They are literally just venting pain. Pain is very, very articulate when it needs to be in its own way. See, pain speaks its own language. It's fluent in the language of blame. Pain is fluent in the language of blame. It will easily, without skipping a beat, blame friends, neighbors, family. It'll blame ourselves for what has happened. And it gets very poetic when it blames God. Because ultimately, God's in charge of everything, so everything's his fault. We need to understand that Jesus does not have any anger towards Mary and Martha. He hears what they say, 
And he's not wounded by their words. He's wounded because of their words. In other words, it's the hurt you feel that caused you to say something you don't even mean that makes me hurt. You see, the difference is he's not hurt at us or angry at us. He's hurt and angry at the things that happen to make us feel the way we do. That is such understanding. That's why he weeps, not corrects. Weeps with them, doesn't correct them. Yet, and perhaps this is what God sees and what we need to see, is that blame is always shadowed by belief. I don't blame unless there's some sort of underlying belief behind the blame. If God wasn't loving and he was a jerk, then why would I blame him for the death of somebody? That would be expected. The fact that it's his fault suggests I know that he is loving towards Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and myself. Furthermore, who blames somebody that doesn't exist? The whole concept of blaming says, I know you could, and I know you're there. I just don't know what I'm saying right now because I'm hurting. Amen. Which footnote, if, uh, is the thing I've always found interesting about atheism is they spend so much time disproving something that doesn't exist in their mind. I've always found that interesting. And yet, when we blame God, that's the admission that he can do something, he is loving, and he is there. And we need to hear that when we hear people blaming God in their pain. And so to show the underlying belief, Martha then makes confession. It's almost like she hears what she said and says, wait a minute, I know I'm hurting, but this is, this is what I kind of mean to say. So right after she blames you, she says, she says in verse 22, but even now, like, but, 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 but even now, like, let me undergird that a little bit. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Sort of still blaming like, It says all because you're not asking God yet, so ask him, please. (laughs) But you see the belief. And Jesus has this dialogue with her about resurrection. She's like, yeah, I know, everybody raises from the dead at the end of time. But she's like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, yeah, there's that whole future thing, but I am here right now to give you resurrection in this present life. Like, you don't have to live burying pain and burying anger and blame and, and guilt, maybe guilt for not sending me sooner, sending for me sooner, whatever you're living with, and you're going to bury deep into your life because of this tragic event. You don't have to live with that. I can raise that up now. I can raise Lazarus up now just to show you. And then she admits, yeah, I do believe this. Mary, on the other hand, We see her reaction in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, verse 32, she fell at his feet saying to him, now it's the same words as Martha. They clearly think the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she says nothing else. Now, would she have said like Martha, but I know that you can do whatever you want. I think she had all of that ready to say. I think she wanted to say more, but she couldn't get the words out of her mouth. Because suddenly, sobbing replaced speaking and weeping replaced words. She was broken and breaking down before she can get another word out of her mouth. The very next verse tells us that Jesus saw her weeping. 
Martha was like a little more together, like, it's your fault, but I kind of believe. And, and Mary's like, it's your fault, and I can't do it. And she starts breaking down. I say breaking down because this is the way we talk when it comes to weeping. And I, and I get it because we don't like weeping. It's, it's like, here's, here's your ideal life. And then here's weeping. It's like the low life. And so there's a descent there. And, and we like to feel strong, right? We like to keep it together. And I'm not going to cry. I, I'm good. And then it happens and we feel like it means I lost control. I lost strength. I'm no longer in charge of my emotions. They took over me. And so we use terminology like I broke down and wept. But I think what Jesus is showing us in this passage is that this breakdown is the way we get built back up. It's falling upward, if you will. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we are actually willing to let the power of God work unhindered in our lives. Because as long as I'm a little bit in control and have a little bit of strength, God's going to merely be my assistant. But when we break, God is not an assistant. He's a deliverer. He's not a helper. He's a healer. And it's in these moments that we also learn not to pray just for our problems, but we learn to pray for his presence. Because where else can I go? I have nothing left. I'm, I'm at the bottom. I'm at the end of myself. And so the weeping's necessary. And sometimes we cannot hold it off because uh, we just don't like the pain that comes with weeping. We don't like the, the embarrassment, the loss of control. And so we, we can get really good. And you can get really good at this. Just kind of turn that switch off. I don't feel those emotions. Hmm. That'd be nice if there were two light switches for our emotions. Pain, off, pleasure, on. <laughs> Darkness, off, light, on. But unfortunately, our emotions are all wired to the same light switch. So that when you turn off the pain, you're also turning off the ability to feel pleasure and joy. You numb the darkness, you numb the light. And it's, it's true when you talk to people who are depressed or who've gone through things, and they kinda, they've gotten to a point where it's like, it doesn't bother me. They just kind of cruise through life, and they've learned to survive, Right? But they're also the same people. And I ask them this directly. It's not just a sense. I ask them, but do you have joy? Nope. Do you ever enjoy anything? Nope. They've sacrificed feeling pain and weeping and coming to the end of themselves, literally dying like in a metaphorical way, coming to the end of their abilities. They sacrifice that weakness to never have the joy and pleasure of what the rest of life can offer you. And this is why Mary breaks down, we say. But this is exactly what Mary needs to do. 
This is exactly what you and I need to do. In pain and in unfortunate circumstances, we need to be willing to go down the valley of the shadow of weeping. And it feels like death. And it's the only way forward. It's the only way to experience life. I want you to see something here. You may have missed the subtlety. I've taught, we just went through this passage, what, a few months ago when we were in the Gospel of John, right? So it's kind of like challenged, like, I just taught this, like, how do we do this again? Um, but, but this is what stuck out to me. I didn't see this the last time. Look again at verse 30. So we know that Martha met Jesus outside the village. In verse 30, we see, now Jesus had not yet come into the village. So when Mary goes to talk to Jesus, she is outside the village with Jesus. Then she weeps. And Jesus says this in verse 34. Where have you laid him? And then he weeps with her. But but we have to see this. Jesus is outside the village when Martha comes to him and blames him. He's outside the village when Mary first comes to him and blames him. But it's when Mary breaks down. It's when Mary comes to the end of her, uh, her self-resources, of, of her, who she is. She's, she comes and she realizes, I can't do anything. It's when Mary is there that Jesus then takes the step into the situation. It's then that Jesus invites himself to the very tomb, to the very heart of the pain and sorrow. And so then we see him, verse 38, Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb. The progress moves with our willingness to die and let go and say, I can't, I'm at the end of myself. And that's when Jesus comes and says, take away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man comes out. Unbind the cloths that are binding him. Let him be free and go. And so, so I've, I've, I've realized that Jesus waits. Jesus delays. Jesus does not always answer us immediately. And he puts us in these tight spots. And he hangs out at Starbucks for two days. Or he meets that woman who's hurt and doesn't acknowledge Jairus for a while. He does these things so that we get to the point where Jesus is no longer just our helper, but he's our healer. He's our deliverer. He's our savior. He's our resurrection and life. Because I can't be resurrected until I die. I can't have the true strength and power of God come until I come to my true weakness. It's only in that letting go that he comes in and comes to the tomb of the places where I've buried my deepest hurt and my deepest insecurities and the things of death. I've just buried them in there and then I've rolled the stone to cover it up, say, we just don't go in that room. But it's when she weeps that Jesus is able to get there. And then he says, roll away the stone. And who opposes the idea? Not Mary. It's Martha who says, yeah, but it's really bad in there. So I need to open my dead heart to let God's living love in. And then the bonds that bind me will be unloosed and I will be unbound and let go. As it says at the end there, unbind him and let him go. Brothers and sisters, how many Christians 
in this room, in our world, have Jesus in their life? Have him. You know, he's like a secretary. Sort of organizes things. Takes a few calls for us. But how many of us have let him get all the way in? And there let his true radical transformation, turning the wilderness of death within into the garden of life flowing out. That's where true transformation happens. We don't need more proper belief. And I think Jesus recognizes that with Mary and Martha. I'm not going to take the time to just correct what you said about me right there. I'm just going to get into where the death is and resurrect that. And we need more churches and Christians who are willing to go there with Jesus than we need preachers who are razor sharp on the nature of God and what this verse means. Now, those are good tools to help us on our journey, but they are not the journey. They're just tools. They're walking sticks. I can have the best walking stick in the world and keep it on the shelf. keep it there, but um, walking sticks are meant to help you go into that valley and up that mountain. And that's why we have teaching, and that's why we try to have good, you know, we try to be right and know what our beliefs are, but brothers and sisters, that does not transform the way an unguarded, weeping, and open heart says, you know what? I've waited and waited and waited. You've delayed, and I don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it, so I just, I give up trying to figure it out, and that's where it happens. And that's what we need more of. I want to see us so free. I want to see us so alive because we've opened the stone. We've opened the tomb. We've rolled that away. And yep, Martha's right. It stinks. It does. But you can keep it there or you can let it turn into life. Last image here. It's the way we kind of hide things in our life, like, like the way you clean your room when you were younger or your kids did. Yeah, just you throw things in that closet, right? Shut the door. It's clean. It works. A few months later, the door's getting harder to shut. It works until the door bursts open and the mess is all over there again. The best thing to do is to do the work to put it where it belongs. And that's all Jesus is doing. He's standing at our tomb, weeping at the stone and saying, I just want you to roll it away. You've been stuffing and cramming and burying for way too long. Let it out, unbind it and let it go. And the dead man lived and we will live.